Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features strong language, violence, and discussion of sexuality that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. August 23rd, 1972. Just after midnight, 27-year-old John Wadowitz had been trapped inside a Chase Manhattan bank with his group of hostages for almost nine hours after a robbery gone sideways. He'd done it all for his wife, Liz Eaton. He planned to use the score money to fly to Europe and arrange for her gender confirmation surgery. Sadly, she wanted no part of his plot. Liz told him he should let everyone go and surrender. But John was in too deep to give up, and he worried his partner in crime, 18-year-old Sal Naturale, would kill himself and everyone else to avoid going to jail. John had to see this through to the end to save them. Now, finally, the police were ready to make a deal. They were sending an airport limo to take John, Sal, and the group of hostages to JFK. Buoyed by his change in fortune, John pulled the ladies in the bank. Where did they want to go? Moscow, Tel Aviv? One of the tellers, Shirley Ball, scoffed. Moscow was too cold. Tel Aviv was too dangerous. John sat down behind the bank manager's desk and kicked his feet up. He shrugged at them, smiling. Well, wherever you want to go, girls, we'll go. But across the street from the bank, FBI agent Richard Baker was prepping his team to end the standoff once and for all. No one in the bank was getting on that plane. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in kidnapping situations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. 
You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Hostage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, so let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our third and final episode on John Wadowitz, the real-life inspiration for the Hollywood classic Dog Day Afternoon. Last week, we followed the initial hours of the standoff between John and the police, as well as the wild media frenzy that covered every minute of it. As the crisis dragged on, thousands of neighbors and reporters crowded the street to watch a modern-day Robin Hood take on the man. This week, we'll recount the drastic action the FBI took to end this day-long standoff. And we'll cover how John inspired one of Al Pacino's most memorable roles. When 27-year-old John Wadowitz and 18-year-old Sal Natarale walked into the Chase Manhattan Bank at Avenue P and East 3rd Street on August 22, 1972, they assumed they'd be back in their getaway car in less than 10 minutes. Now, it was just after 2 a.m. on August 23rd. They'd been trapped in the bank, surrounded by police and spectators for the last 11 hours. But considering the circumstances, John, Sal, and their eight remaining hostages were in relatively high spirits. After hours of sweating in the dark, not knowing what would happen next, there was finally a light at the end of the tunnel. They were getting out of here. John did his best to entertain his captives while they waited for their ride to the airport. They needed to tell the cops which one of the hostages would be released when the airport limo got there. Per the terms of John's deal, he'd release one hostage when the limo arrived, two more when they got to JFK, where a chartered Hansa jet waited for them. The rest of them would board the plane. John decided to make a game out of the selection process. He tore a sheet of paper into eight squares, marked seven of them with black spots, then scrunched them all up into balls. Then he cupped his hands around them and shook them up. He told everyone to stand in a line so they could each draw a ball. Whoever picked the blank slip would be the next to go free. John acted like he had a $20 million Powerball jackpot in his hands as he went down the line. Who's it going to be, folks? Who's our lucky winner tonight? Is it you, ma'am? Or you? He made them wait to open the papers until everyone had drawn. Sal drum-rolled on a nearby desk. And open. Together, the hostages hastily unwrapped their pieces of paper. One of the tellers, Josephine Totino, waved her blank slip in the air and jumped up and down. The rest of them all cheered and clapped. John grabbed her wrist and waved her arm in the air like a champion boxer after a fight. Winner! Winner! But across the street, in the FBI's commandeered barbershop command center, the mood was much less jovial. Agent Baker wrapped up yet another phone call with New York City Mayor John Lindsay. 
Lindsay was concerned that the highly publicized and protracted standoff was making the NYPD look incompetent. Baker tried to explain once again that time was on their side. As we covered last week, the longer a hostage situation drags on, the more likely it is that a crisis actor will become fatigued or even fall asleep. Baker reassured Mayor Lindsay. They had a plan to force the robbers out of the bank and into a more vulnerable position so they could neutralize them without risk to anyone else. Storming the bank and losing hostages in the process would make them look much more incompetent, guaranteed. What Baker didn't dare mention on the call was that John's captives were already showing signs of Stockholm Syndrome, or bonding with their hostage takers. While there's some debate on the legitimacy of Stockholm Syndrome, the FBI reported that it appears in roughly 8% of hostage situations, as Scott W. Allen detailed in the Encyclopedia of Psychology and Law. This gradually occurs as a natural process of the passage of time, typically over hours and days. This syndrome compels one of the following behaviors. The hostages will begin to have positive feelings toward the hostage takers. The hostages will begin to develop negative feelings toward law enforcement. And the hostage takers will begin to develop positive feelings toward their hostages. Indeed, an hour before, John had asked for a doctor to examine a few of the bank employees under the guise of making sure they were able to travel internationally. John found out the bank manager, 43-year-old Robert Barrett, was a diabetic and wanted to make sure he was okay. Barrett insisted that he'd had some orange juice and was fine, but John demanded that he get checked out by a doctor outside the bank. At Agent Baker's suggestion, the doctor tried to take Barrett to the hospital for a cardiogram in a ploy to get him away from the standoff. But the bank manager refused. He waved off the doctor's concerns and happily walked back inside the bank. Once he was through the door, he quipped to one of the tellers, bet you never thought you'd spend the night with your boss, huh? And Barrett wasn't the only one showing signs of Stockholm Syndrome. Earlier, while John and the state's attorney hashed out the details of the limo ride to JFK, teller Shirley Ball came out and joined her captor on the sidewalk, standing a few feet away from him. Her husband, Harry, rushed over to greet her. He'd been standing in the crowd of spectators for hours since he'd left work to come to Brooklyn. Shirley hugged and kissed him, wiping away a few tears. But that wasn't why she'd come outside. Instead, she approached FBI agent Baker and berated him for how he was handling the situation. It had been hours since the FBI agreed to take them to the airport. Where was the car? She scolded. Enough is enough. Do you want to trade eight lies for two? Don't stretch our luck. Give them their demands. Not only did she advocate for her captor, but when John wrapped up his conversation with the state attorney and headed back towards the bank, Shirley quickly followed him without even being asked. He wasn't armed. He was hardly even paying attention to her. Baker thought she probably could have escaped if she'd wanted to, but that was the point. She didn't want to. Scott W. Allen cautioned that it should never be assumed that hostages suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, if given the opportunity, will proactively initiate an escape 
or will assist the SWAT team in the successful resolution of the crisis. In this case, the hostages were willing to take a transatlantic flight with their captors. John refused to tell the FBI where he planned to fly to in Europe, just that he would make a few stops and release more hostages along the way. He didn't want the police to be able to track them and ambush them overseas. Agent Baker didn't press for more details. First, he knew that the pilot would have to tell air traffic control wherever they were going. Second, Baker wasn't expecting John to even make it off of Avenue P. With the limo finally on the way, Baker stationed a dozen snipers on the rooftop surrounding the bank. They'd all been given the same directive. If they saw a clean shot at either John Wadowitz or Sal Naturale while they walked to the car, take it. Baker had managed to clear some of the spectators from the surrounding streets, but there were still a few hundred behind the barricades, refusing to leave the show. He heard their cheers and applause before the airport limo even turned the corner. The commotion eventually drew John out of the bank once more. This time, he had a rifle slung over his shoulder. Baker radioed to the snipers, hold your fire. They had to wait until they had both John and Sal. The driver parked the limo in the street and Baker went out to meet them. John motioned for the driver to get out of the car. He wanted to check the vehicle for booby traps. When he was satisfied with his search, John sauntered over to Baker. He commented on the car. It was a pretty nice ride. But Baker stuck to business. It was time to release the next hostage. John looked back to the bank and waved Josephine Titino outside. She stepped onto the sidewalk, drawing another response from the crowd then let a few police officers escort her to safety. Okay, Baker said, let's get this show on the road. But John shook his head. They weren't leaving just yet. He had a new demand. Up next, John forces Agent Baker's hand and the hostages finally leave the bank. Now back to the story. August 23, 1972, 3.50 a.m., almost 13 hours after 27-year-old John Wadowitz and 18-year-old Sal Naturale held up a Brooklyn Chase Manhattan bank, the standoff was finally coming to a close. The police had given in to their demands, providing them with a limo to take the robbers and their hostages to the airport. But now, before he would get inside the car, John suddenly revealed to FBI agent Robert Baker that he had a new stipulation. He didn't like the look of the guy behind the wheel of the airport limo. He wanted a different driver. Even though John had inspected the car for possible traps, he wanted to make sure the driver wasn't a threat either. Baker frowned, but ultimately agreed. He was hoping the bandits wouldn't even make it inside the vehicle. So who cared if he let John choose a new driver? Who did he want? John looked at the clump of surrounding agents and pointed to a tall, clean-cut agent. How about that guy? Baker called him over. Murphy. Agent James Murphy quickly hustled to his boss's side. He didn't react when Baker told him his new role in the operation, just nodded and gave a yes, sir. 
John told Murphy to hold out his arms, then started frisking him for weapons. It drew more whoops and whistles from the spectators. Even in the dark, Baker could tell Murphy was blushing. When he was satisfied, John nodded to Baker. Then he motioned to a clump of police officers huddled on the corner. He yelled to them, I want all you cops across the street. But they held their position. John screamed, Don't you know what across the street means? All you people with guns, I want them on the ground. When the officers were still hesitant to obey, Baker motioned for them to comply. John puffed up his chest. That's right, he was the one in charge. Face saving can be an important tactic in hostage negotiations. Scott W. Allen described, face saving techniques allow both law enforcement and the subjects to maintain some semblance of control while agreeing on options of mutual gain. John finally headed back toward the bank. I'll go get the girls. Murphy took his place in the driver's seat. Then Baker quietly revealed to him, there was a gun stashed under the floor mat. However, Baker hoped this would all be over before Murphy had a chance to use it. Inside the bank, John rallied his troops. He readied his rifle and Sal his shotgun. Robert Barrett volunteered to carry the case with the robbery loot. It was still technically Chase Manhattan property after all. Baker radioed to the snipers. Any clean shots were fair game. The door to the bank opened. But Baker's hopes of ending the standoff in the street were immediately dashed. The seven remaining hostages had clumped in a protective circle surrounding Sal and John. They slowly walked to the car as a unit. It would be impossible to fire on the criminals without risking hitting a hostage. Baker radioed, stand down. When the group reached the car, John, Robert Barrett, and the assistant bank manager, Dolores Godesheim, climbed into the back row of the airport limo. John sat in the middle, a human shield on either side of him. Sal Natarale did the same in the next row of seats, flanked by Shirley Ball and another teller. The final three hostages took the row in front of them, leaving Agent Murphy alone in the front. When Murphy adjusted the rearview mirror, he saw the barrel of Sal's shotgun staring back at him, pointed directly at his head. At 4.25 a.m., Murphy put the car in drive. They were off. A half dozen police cars followed behind the limo as it raced down the Belt Parkway to JFK Airport. Agent Baker rode in the front car of the police caravan, trying to figure out a new plan. Well, the objective hadn't changed. He wasn't letting a single hostage get on board the Hansa jet. He just had to figure out a new way to neutralize John and Sal. Meanwhile, in the limo, the jovial atmosphere from the bank had dissipated. John Wadowitz wasn't cracking any more jokes. He gripped his rifle and watched the road, making sure Murphy didn't divert from the route. Murphy's hands were slick on the steering wheel. Every time he checked his mirror, he was reminded of Sal's shotgun. He tried to keep his wife and child off his mind. Trying to ease some of the tension, Murphy quipped, Hey, careful with that gun, Sal. Hold it a little higher, huh? 
We hit a bump and you'll blow me to pieces. Well, the comment elicited a few titters of laughter from the back seat. After 25 minutes, around 4.45 a.m., Murphy exited the Belt Parkway onto Rockaway Parkway. They could see the lights and signs for JFK ahead. But instead of turning toward the main entrance of the airport, Murphy steered the car towards one of the service drives. John immediately piped up from the back seat. What was this? Where was he going? Murphy told him not to worry. They were using a remote runway at the back of the airport property, meant for smaller charter planes like the Hansa jet, instead of the giant jumbo liners. John accepted the explanation, but stayed tight-lipped and tense. And as long as John was on high alert, so was everyone else. Murphy drove through a chain-link fence entrance on a gravel-paved road leading to a deserted airstrip, runway 22R. He parked the car and killed the engine. The caravan of police cars was right behind, their lights flashing in the darkness. John asked, where's the plane? Murphy tried to joke with him. Did they really think they'd drag everyone out here in the middle of the night if there wasn't a plane? It was on its way probably getting fuel. But John was still suspicious. He puffed up his chest and gripped the rifle. He told Murphy they'd waited all day. They'd wait all night if they had to. Agent Baker sat in a police car and asked the same question over the radio. How long did they have before the plane arrived? It would be there in 20 minutes. He was running out of time. With the engine off and the air conditioning gone, everyone in the limo started to sweat. It was so humid, the glass started fogging up. Soon, no one would be able to see into the car. Seeing an opportunity, Murphy asked John if he could roll down the windows and let some of the breeze in. John said, sure, why not? As they sat waiting in the parked car, Murphy tried again to engage John and distract him from his anxiety. As Dr. Harvey Schlossberg described, the idea is to keep them problem solving, get them talking, but distraction is key. It causes them to shift gears. Murphy reminded him that he was supposed to let another hostage go now that they were at the airport. Did he know who he was going to pick? John smugly informed Murphy that he was a man of the people, not a dictator. He'd let fate determine who was released before, and that's what he'd do again. And without their balls of paper to hold a lottery, John came up with a new method. He announced to the car, I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 50. The two who guess closest win. With a new game afoot, John easily resumed his role as MC. He scrunched his eyes shut and summoned a number into his mind. Which one of them would guess it? Did they have any mind readers in the group? Shirley Ball interjected. How would they know he didn't change the number after they all guessed? She was right. So for the sake of fairness, John leaned up to Sal in the next row and whispered the number in his co-conspirator's ear. Now there was no cheating. Using the barrel of his rifle as a makeshift microphone, John pointed at each of the hostages so they could announce their number one by one. Two, 36, 12, 42. Then John dramatically revealed the winners. Two of the tellers, Kathleen Amore and Santa Strazella, were the closest. Because Kathleen was closer than Santa, she'd be released first when the plane arrived. 
Santa would stay behind in the airport limo when the rest of them boarded the jet. Murphy's ploy worked perfectly. After the game, everyone in the car was more relaxed. The promise of escape was so close. This would all be over soon. When John's stomach growled loudly in the back seat, everyone else burst out laughing. He mockingly huffed. He hadn't eaten all day. Shirley teased him. He could have had some pizza like the rest of them if he hadn't been so paranoid. John called up to Murphy from the back seat. Would there be any food on the plane? But Murphy shook his head. The Hansa jet mostly carried mail and packages. It wasn't equipped for food service. Well, what about the airport terminal? They could all go inside and stock up on snacks before the journey. Who knew how long the flight would be? They should all get some hamburgers. Again, Murphy shot down the idea. It was the middle of the night. The airport was closed. Besides that, there was no way Murphy's boss would let John and his captives roam around the giant airport terminal. It was too big of a security risk. John cajoled him. Come on, Murphy. I'm starving back here. You got to get me something. Murphy pulled the keys out of the ignition and opened the driver's door. Let me see what I can do. The agent kept his face straight and walked slowly and calmly to the group of cop cars. He rapped on Agent Baker's window, interrupting his conversation on the radio. Sir, I have an idea. Sal Naturale watched from the middle seat as Murphy conferred with Baker. He was exhausted and sick of the whole show. He didn't care about hamburgers. He just wanted to get out of here. When Murphy headed back toward the limo, Sal realized that three other agents were following after. What were they trying to pull? Murphy resumed his position in the driver's seat and told the passengers that the plane was about to arrive. They'd figure out the food once they were on board. Sal watched as the other officials circled the car. Baker stood on the right side, another agent on the left. A uniformed cop took a position at the back. Something was going on. He leaned over and whispered to Shirley Ball, Hey, sit a little closer to me, would you? Sal tried to get John's attention, but he was interrupted by gasps and cheers from the girls. The plane was finally here. In the front seat, Murphy used the distraction to slowly reach under the floor mat and retrieve the hidden gun. Then he asked loudly, Hey, Baker, is there going to be food on the plane? Baker answered, Yes. That was the signal. Murphy whirled in the front seat and lunged for Sal's shotgun. Up next, the standoff comes to a violent end. Now, back to the story. At 5.15 a.m. on August 23, 1972, FBI agents Richard Baker and James Murphy devised a desperate ploy to try to end the 14-hour hostage situation. Under the guise of discussing hamburgers, the agents agreed on code words for an attack. Knowing they only had a few moments before the Hansa jet would arrive, Baker, Murphy, and two other lawmen surrounded the airport limo, carrying 27-year-old John Wadowitz, 18-year-old Sal Naturale, and their seven hostages. As the plane approached on the runway, Murphy surreptitiously retrieved his gun from its hiding place. 
He checked the position of Sal's shotgun in the rearview mirror. He was holding it high, pointed toward the ceiling instead of at the back of the agent's head. To let Baker know he had an opening, Murphy called out, Hey Baker, is there going to be food on the plane? From Baker's position on the right side of the limo, he had a clear shot at John. He gave the signal, answering, yes. Then Murphy flew into action, whirling around in the front seat and lunging at Sal. He shoved the barrel of the shotgun into the roof of the car. As Sal scrambled to reclaim the weapon, Murphy fired his own gun, hitting Sal squarely in the chest. Before John could even react, Baker plunged through the open window and snatched the rifle that was laying on John's lap. John could only stare back in sheepish horror as the curtain suddenly fell. Immediately, the other agents and police officers descended on the car. They threw open the doors and ordered, out, everyone out. Baker pulled John from the car and placed him in handcuffs, then walked him over to a waiting cop car. It was the quietest he'd been all day. The police brought John and all of the hostages to the police station at JFK's Port Authority to make a statement about the ordeal. While they had all been sympathetic to John's cause, now that the excitement and adrenaline had worn off, they were less supportive. According to P.F. Kluge in Thomas Moore's article on the standoff, The Boys in the Bank, Shirley Ball found Agent Murphy at the station and asked him what happened to Sal Naturale. He told her that he was taken in an ambulance to Jamaica Hospital in Queens, but pronounced dead on arrival. Murphy's bullet had punctured both his heart and left lung. Shirley replied, better him than me. After making their statements, the hostages were finally free. When the assistant bank manager, 48-year-old Dolores Godesheim, got home that morning around 7 a.m., she put her clothes in the wash, took a bath, and then got dressed for mass without sleeping or eating. She said, I figured that I had asked God for help, and he gave it to me. I had to thank him. On the afternoon of the 23rd, only a day after he first took his hostages, John Wadowitz was arraigned and charged with armed robbery and abduction. His bail was set at $250,000. In Frank Karadran and Allison Berg's documentary, The Dog, John alleged that the police didn't believe his true motivations for robbing the bank. They just couldn't fathom that he would go to such lengths for Liz Eden. In fact, they probably couldn't fathom that Liz Eden would go to such lengths as gender confirmation surgery. In 1972, it was just too unheard of. So instead, John made up an excuse. He wrote that he met a Chase Manhattan executive at a bar in Greenwich Village, and he planned the whole thing. John said he never met Sal Naturale before the robbery. The executive introduced them. But again, John alleged this was all a lie to appease the police interrogating him. And considering what followed, that seemed likely. While John sat in jail waiting for his day in court, Hollywood came calling. In October of 1972, John's lawyer approached him with an offer. The producers of what eventually became Dog Day Afternoon offered him $7,500, about $46,000 today, plus 1% of the film's profits in exchange for his life rights. 
John hesitated at first, but then realized he could use the money to fulfill his promise to Liz and pay for her surgery. So he signed the papers. Even though the film wasn't released until 1975, John received enough of the money up front to pay for Liz to have her procedure in March of 1973. Well, sadly, as John had feared from the beginning, it drove a wedge between them and ended the relationship. A month after the surgery, Liz came to visit him in prison. She told John that it was the last time she'd be able to see him. John explained, Liz said, I talked to my doctors and my psychiatrist, and it's not good for me. It won't help me. I have to leave, start my own life as a real woman, and have nothing to do with you. Then she said goodbye, stood up, and walked out. John was devastated, perhaps as equally devastated as Liz had been the year prior, when she realized that John hadn't been able to come up with the surgery money for her birthday. On Sunday, April 27th, John went to church and received communion. Then he went back to his cell and tried to kill himself, slitting his wrists and forearms. Thankfully, someone in the prison intervened and saved John's life. He went to the hospital and received treatment. Unfortunately, the very next day was John's scheduled sentencing hearing. His first wife, Carmen Ann Bafulco, remembered that he was in no shape to stand before a judge. He was covered in bandages and clearly medicated. Whether it was the pain medication, the blood loss, or his close brush with death, John was exceptionally candid that day in court, even for him. When the judge asked if he had anything to say before hearing his sentence, John replied, Love is a very strange thing. Some feel it more deeply than others do. I love my wife Carmen, my son, my daughter, my mother, and I love Liz. I love all of them. I know it was wrong to rob the bank, but what is money compared to human life? He asked the judge if he loved his own wife. Yes, he did. John continued, Imagine your wife is dying of cancer and you needed $10,000 and you couldn't get it. You tried everything to get it. You tried to borrow it, tried to make deals. Nothing worked out. Wouldn't you do something illegal to get the $10,000 to save your wife? When the judge disagreed with him, John shook his head in disgust and declared, then you don't love your wife. You don't even know what the hell love is all about. Even with his passionate speech, the judge was unmoved. He sentenced John to 20 years in prison. When Dog Day Afternoon was released in 1975, John was only a few years into his sentence at Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, but he was still able to watch the film. In fact, he made it a stipulation in his life rights contract. He arranged for two screenings, one by himself and one for the rest of the inmates. When the warden tried to block the second viewing, John allegedly threatened to start a prison riot. In John's estimation, the movie was only about 30% accurate. But he spoke highly of Al Pacino's performance, writing, For almost two hours, he was just fantastic. He made me laugh cry, sweat, and feel uncomfortable at times all in one movie. His characterization was flawless. 
John was also critical of the film's producers, alleging that they stiffed him on a significant amount of money. In truth, this money went to a survivor's fund for his hostages as pursuant to New York state law. Later known as Son of Sam laws, criminals were prohibited from profiting off selling the stories of their crimes. Instead, the money went to their victims. But in the absence of money, the film brought John notoriety behind bars, not just among the inmates, but with friends and family visiting other prisoners. Wherever John went, they knew him as the Dog Day Guy. In addition to fame, John once again found love in prison. He met fellow inmate George Heath on July 16, 1974. George said of the relationship, John was, to me, a bad, crazy individual. But the thing I liked about John, he had a lot of heart. A few weeks later, on July 31st, they got married in the prison yard. George was also a jailhouse lawyer and reviewed the details of John's case. In 1976, he realized John had grounds for an appeal. Because he was so impaired on the day of his sentencing hearing, John was deprived of his right to due process. Therefore, he could file for a new sentencing hearing. At his resentencing in 1978, John's punishment was reduced to 15 years. In addition, perhaps because of his notoriety, the presiding judge recommended that John be released on parole. As a condition of his release, John had to find some kind of employment. True to form, he went to the same Chase Manhattan Bank that he robbed and applied to be a security guard. John mused, I'm the guy from Dog Day Afternoon, and if I'm guarding your bank, nobody's going to rob the dog's bank. Also, I could sign autographs for people that open up new accounts. Predictably, the bank turned him down. John instead found a public works job cleaning toilets on Park Avenue. But he still enjoyed visiting Avenue P and reliving his glorious dog day. On multiple occasions, John stood out front wearing a shirt that read, I robbed this bank, and signed autographs and took pictures. Liz Eden died in 1987 at age 41 from complications of AIDS-related pneumonia. Though they hadn't spoken in years at the time of her death, John came to her funeral and delivered a eulogy. John lived with his mother, Teresa, for the rest of his life, never seeing any more of the money he felt was owed to him from Warner Brothers. He died of cancer on January 2nd, 2006, at the age of 60. John said that when he found out about his diagnosis, he didn't even discuss treatment with his doctors. He didn't want to lose his hair or any of that. Instead, he asked his doctors how many days he had left, so he knew how long he had to party. In Bergen Karadran's documentary, the filmmakers asked John if he had any regrets over his actions. His reply, if I had a dream, and in that dream I saw everything that happened, would I still go out and do it? You're damn right I would still go out and do it. I'm the gay Babe Ruth. I won. But that's the purely romantic lens of the situation, shaded by the rose-colored glasses of Hollywood. Perhaps journalist Bob Kapstadter put it best. He summarized, 
Here's a guy that probably had a hard life, but really led a twisted life. I think for his own sense of self-worth, this is what he spun in his own mind. Look what I did. Wow. But you know, give us a break. He robbed a bank. He was a criminal. A romantic criminal, but he was a criminal. Thanks again for tuning into Hostage. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. For more information on John Wadowitz, amongst the many sources we used, we found P.F. Kluge and Thomas More's Life magazine article, The Boys in the Bank, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Hostage, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Hostage on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode is written by Abigail Cannon and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. <laughs>